One of the things I, I recognized this morning, um, looking out of my backyard being filled with snow, is um, that the reality of snow is preceded by the reality of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of our sins. And so in Isaiah, when the prophet Isaiah says, though our sins are like scarlet, you will make them white as snow, the purpose of snow in the universe is designed to show us a picture of the greater reality, which is that we are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's pretty amazing that God takes the time every year to remind us of that by clothing the ground in a blanket of pure white snow. It's an amazing thing. Let's pray one more time before we dive in. Heavenly Father, I am not sufficient to be able to proclaim your word in a way in my own flesh, in a way that does it justice. And so I'm asking right now for your mercy and your grace in me to communicate what I feel you've given the people of Risen Hope this week. But I'm also asking, Father, for your grace to collide with the hearts of every individual here and that can hear my voice, um, that you would move by the power of your Holy Spirit and compel us to see this truth, the truth we're looking at today, with new clarity and with conviction, Father, that isn't just momentary, Father, that we don't leave here and say that was a good idea, we should do that and forget, Father, but that you would really embed in our souls the reality that we're looking at today. It's that important, it's that critical, it's what it means to be a believer at a fundamental level. And so I ask that you would meet us today in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. If you've got your Bibles, please open them and turn to Colossians 1. We have been in a series called The Harvest, and in this series we've been spending time looking, really asking two questions. What is the gospel, um, as Paul describes it in the book of Colossians, and what does the gospel do? And so this week and next, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be wrapping up this series, The Harvest, by looking at a man named Epaphras, who's mentioned, um, we've already spoken of him multiple times, He's mentioned uh, and he's described in two different ways in this next verse, this next part of the passage. And I want to really take some time asking, who is this man? How does the gospel intersect with this man's life? And what does it mean um, for the people of Col the Colossae church? What does it mean for them to have had this man bring the gospel to them? And ultimately, of course, what does it mean for us? So we're going to be starting in the middle of uh, verse 5 at of this, and we'll go all the way through verse 8. Paul says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So of this, he's referring to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, which has come to you. The gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it, the gospel, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So who is this guy, Epaphras? Well, most theologians believe that Epaphras heard the gospel while Paul was preaching it in Ephesus, because we don't really have a lot of evidence that he actually went to the Colossae city. Um, and so Paul's preaching the gospel in Ephesus. 
Colossae is not too far away from it, so maybe Epaphras was there. He hears the gospel. He says, this is true. I will believe and trust it. And then he, he gets so caught up in what happened to them, him by the power of the Holy Spirit. He goes back to Colossae and he begins to preach the gospel himself. He was evangelizing in his own context. That was the res- response to his, his faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, so one thing we can immediately learn from Epaphras, and I really want this to be something that you keep in your mind, uh, whether you're a longtime Christian or whether you're new to the concept of Christianity, is that um, you do not need to be an experienced or seasoned veteran varsity Christian to preach the gospel. Epaphras was not. The gospel collided with him, and he was so transformed by the reality of the gospel that he's like, the next thing I need to do is tell somebody about this man, Christ Jesus. And so you don't need to be put together. You don't need to have things in order. You don't need to be fully sanctified because you won't be um, before you see Christ. You don't need any of those things. You simply need to know it and believe it. And so uh, one thing I can promise you right out of the gates is that, and I, I'm, I'm confident of this, God will, if you open your mouth to speak whatever he wants to, God will powerfully use it in the lives of other people. I can guarantee that even when you don't feel like it's being used. So to compel you to love where you live, I would say submit to the, the needs that you see around you. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's back up a little bit. So Paul uses two titles to describe this man, Epaphras. One of them is beloved fellow servant. Beloved fellow servant. And the next one is faithful minister. And I want to look at both these because they mean different things. They're similar language, but they mean different things. Um, And I want to focus on on both of them. This week, we'll look at beloved fellow servant. So what does it mean when Paul calls Epaphras beloved fellow servant? What is that? What does he describe? And why is he describing it to the Colossian church? If you think about it for a second, the church knows him. The church knows Epaphras. The church has been um, engaging with him, talking to him, hanging out with him, being preached to by him. The church knows Epaphras. Why is it um, that Paul is using this? And, and one of the things I want to hold out for you is, is this. Paul is intentionally doing something by bringing up Epaphras in this letter. He is doing it by design. This isn't an accident. He's not just, this is not extra words. He wants to commend to the Colossian people something about Epaphras that they need to see and embrace, not just in him, but in their own lives. And it's this idea of Epaphras being a beloved fellow servant. So one of the most common titles used throughout the entire New Testament for the authors of Scripture and for the people who are involved in it is this idea of being a servant of Christ. It is used literally, this word, doulos, servant, is used 40 times in the New Testament to describe commitment to Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew equivalent is used 250 times to describe commitment to Yahweh, God. And so this word here, the Greek word doulos, is actually not servant. Servant is a very domesticated um, public-facing way of saying it means slave. It means slave. Sometimes it's translated bondservant. And so 
what Paul is actually saying of, of Epaphras is he is a beloved fellow slave. He is a beloved fellow bondservant. He's loved by us, and he's a fellow slave of Christ Jesus. Now, throughout history, and this is important for me to make this clarification, there are two major kinds of buckets that you would put slavery in. Both of them are not ethical. Both of them are not moral. But I need to make this distinction here because sometimes when we think of the word slave, we immediately go to one bucket, and this is not that. Um, so the Greek word doulos means bondservant, but it is not the chattel slavery that occurred in this country a few hundred years ago, or not, that, not even that long ago. Chattel slavery, which is the slavery that strips all value, all value from a human being, all dignity from a human being, and makes them into a subhuman piece of property, that is not what Paul is thinking of here when he says doulos, not at all. Um, it's slavery, that, that is wicked and abominable. And one of the reasons we still have race relation issues in our country is because of how horrific it really was. That's not what he's talking about here. Ancient slaver, slavery in, in, in Greece was far different. In, in Rome, it was far different. And I'm not saying it was moral or ethical or right. It was just different. Slaves back then functioned as a part of society. They were like serfs um, in medieval times. And they had almost every right of every other citizen. They were human beings. They were respected. They should be respected in, as dignified image bearers of God, other fellow human beings. Um, but they, didn't, they weren't able to vote is one of the things that they didn't have. And um, Paul, when he's thinking about this, he's using this concept because in, in, in Rome and in all these different parts of Asia Minor, the idea of slaves was, pro, I mean, it was normative. Um, slaves was just a normal part of culture, whether you were put there because you were born into a community like that, whether you found it financially viable, whatever it might be, it was part of culture. And so Paul is using this, great, this Greek concept to communicate um, what it means for you to have a relationship with Christ Jesus in the same way. That a slave, what a slave would do is everything they can to please their master anything that their master asked. Their purposes in life would align with what their master was. And so Paul, just to clarify, he advocates in Philemon and other parts of the New Testament that if you're a slave and you have an opportunity to be free, please be free <laughs> because you're free in Christ Jesus. Um, but he recognizes that this is a normative part of culture and he's willing to use this aspect of reality really to paint a picture for his relationship with Jesus Christ. So when it comes to slave, the word doulos, Paul isn't predominantly thinking in social cultural terms. He is thinking in theological terms, as in my relationship to Christ Jesus. And so the question is, why does Paul refer to Epaphras as a fellow slave? And why does he think of himself in these ways? I am a slave to Christ. Now, some of you, and, and I've kind of uh, hinted at it, have already arrived at some uh, at a logical, rational conclusion, uh, which is that um, anyone um, who knows what a slave would do in terms of their relationship with the master would say that Paul is trying to say that he's completely and totally devoted to Jesus Christ. He's trying to say that he is sold out for Jesus, and no one and nothing in this world controls him because he belongs to Jesus. His allegiance 
is with Jesus Christ and his purposes are aligned with whatever Jesus wants of him. <clears throat> so we know this is true about Paul and we know this is true about Epaphras. But the question we have to ask is why is this, why am I talking about this today? What is the purpose of it for us to know about it? Why is Paul communicating it to the Colossian church? And the reason is actually answered for us by Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. This is what Paul says to the, to the Corinthian church. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul says to the Corinthian church, and to really every single church body in human history, and every individual that comprises this, you aren't your own. If you're a Christian, you're not your own. Jesus bought you. He paid for you. He paid for your future. And he paid for the entire totality of your existence. You are his. So this is, now it becomes real for us. It's not some abstract principle in history uh, about two people that we've never met before. When Paul says, beloved fellow servant, he's not just talking about Epaphras. He's talking about us. So here's the deal. What I want to spend the rest of our time with together doing today is I want to conduct a diagnostic on our own hearts, on our own lives, by looking at Paul's life and asking some questions along the way. I want to survey specific events in his life and specific statements he's made. Who is uh, Paul, a man clearly dominated by Jesus Christ, and then I want to press our lives against his and see, ask the question really, why is there, is there a difference? And what did Paul see that I haven't seen yet? Why is he saying these things? And maybe I haven't said them yet or felt them. Paul, a man who is a free Roman citizen who had a high standing in the Jewish faith, comes and says, I was bought with a price. I am not my own. I am a slave to Christ Jesus. Why would he say that? To do that, I want to go to Acts 26 for a little bit. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I want to listen to Paul's words. In Acts 26, Paul is on trial. He's got, come back to Jerusalem um, after a few missionary journeys, and he's on trial now because he was arrested and imprisoned um, falsely, and he is before King Agrippa II. And he's been, Agrippa's asking him basically, why do these people want to kill you, Paul? Why do the Jewish leaders want you dead? And Paul says, I'll tell you why. And he gives his testimony. So he says in verse 9, I myself, I, Paul, was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme. And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul is saying very clearly here, and I want you to hear this. Paul is saying, I hated Jesus. 
I hated Jesus, and I tried to extinguish his name from the world. I wanted to erase the memory of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. I wanted the entirety of Jerusalem to have forgotten that this man ever even existed. And in Acts 9, he says he was willing to basically kill Christians to do it. He said, it says in Acts 9, breathing threats and murders against the disciples. Breathing threats and murders against the disciples. What does that mean? It must at least mean that to Paul, killing Christians was the air that he breathed. He wanted Christianity gone from the world. He wanted it ended. But something happens to Paul, doesn't it? He encounters something that changes his life forever. And we see that in verse 12 as he's giving his, his statement to Agrippa. It says in verse 12, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the high priest to export terrorism to Christianity. That's what he's doing here. His goal is to kill more Christians, to imprison more Christians, to destroy Christianity. Then it says, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So Saul, who is Paul here, is struck down. And he asks, while standing, staring blind, at a blinding light, he asks, who are you, Lord? And that's when the bomb goes off and the voice responds, I am Jesus. I try to think when I read through this text, what was it like for Paul when the entire, when his, his life, the bottom fell out completely in this moment. Everything he believed was true suddenly became untrue. And I think we really need to respect Paul's statement. He gives his testimony, there's his testimonies throughout the New Testament. You read it in his letters, you read it in the book of Acts twice. Um, we can't afford, while reading Paul's story, to not to forget that he hated Jesus more than anybody else alive at this time. There's no historical figure that hated Jesus more than this. And here's the deal. We don't have a right to even say it. Like people who live nowadays to say they hate Jesus, they have no idea who Jesus is. He lived 2,000 years ago. Paul was at ground zero. He probably saw him preach. He is the least likely of all people to have this happen to him. And yet it does. So we read on, it says, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to me, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me. 
And so what happened after this? He's told by Jesus, you're a servant. You're my servant now. What happens in Paul's life after this? Well, let's fast forward a few years to, we're fast forwarding, this is a little bit, of, we're getting a little scattered here, but we're fast forwarding a few years from this moment in his life to the point at which he's actually going to be going to Jerusalem where he'll have to give this testimony to Agrippa. And he's on his way, he's in a city called Miletus, and he's talking to the Ephesian elders, people he's lived with, loved, cared for, and he's telling them <laughs> that, hey, listen, I'm going to Jerusalem and I just want you to know you probably will never see me again. The people in Jerusalem don't love me very much and they want me dead. And it says multiple times in this text that he was confident that they would never see his face again and they are weeping as he's talking to them. But he has one statement in his communication to the Ephesian elders that I believe sums up the entirety of his life. And I want to read this to you. Acts 20, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What happened to Paul? In a moment, Paul goes from being an enemy of Christ Jesus to being a slave of Christ Jesus. He goes from hating Jesus with every breath in his body to being willing to be hated for the sake of Jesus Christ. He goes from someone who wanted the memory of Jesus Christ to be extinguished from the world to someone who's not willing to let a square inch of this planet go without Christ being proclaimed in him. What happened to this man? He saw Jesus. He saw Jesus for who he is. And I'm not talking about his physical eyes. I'm saying the eyes of his heart fixed on Jesus Christ and it changed him when he saw that man. The most glorious reality in the universe is Jesus Christ. There is nothing like him. You can see him and your life will change immediately. Paul's going to spend 10 verses in Colossians as we move through. At the beginning of next year, we'll go through them. It's called the Christ hymn. He will spend 10 verses gushing about why Jesus is so amazing. He can't get over it. It's been years since this encounter and he cannot get over it. The reason Paul says he doesn't account his life of any value nor is precious to himself is because the only appropriate response to seeing the risen Christ with the eyes of your heart is a complete lifetime of obedience and adoration. That's the only appropriate response. That's the only thing that corresponds to the reality of who Jesus is. When Jesus says, follow me, there is only one answer, one answer that is given. One answer that can actually affirm his intrinsic objective worth. So it's going to get personal for me here now because this verse in Acts 20 is really huge for me. Those words, if only, mean the world to me. 
That's where I live. I want to tell you, like, you can take a verse like this and you can build your life on it. Verses like this are meant for you to take your life and say, this is me. For the rest of my life, this will be me. Every day. Earlier this year, I actually, even before this was even a thought that God had given us, um, I, I was trying to figure out what it would be like for me to sort of codify what God wanted me to do in this world. Because I felt like um, I needed to know, I needed to have some clarity as to what my purpose was, what my existence served for his purposes. And um, I felt compelled to write a sentence that this is what I'm called to do. And then to do everything I can in my power to live up to that sentence. And um, I spent some days wrestling with what it would be, but I ended up basically with this. I exist, and it's rooted in this text. I exist to convince and compel other people, anyone that God brings me, that Jesus Christ is worth giving up everything for. He is that beautiful. He is that amazing. He is that worthy. And the reason I'm in front of you today, the reason that this is happening to some degree by God's grace and some of the love shown by some people here is because of this, this verse and this sentence that I was given. I refuse personally, I refuse to let another second of my life go without living out that purpose. I'm just not going to let it happen. Philippians 1, 20 through 21 is where I find my footing for this commitment. It is my eager expect. This is Paul again. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. He is imprisoned. He is facing death. He is saying this to the Philippian church. My hope, my eager anticipation is that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored, will be magnified, will be made much of in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul is saying that Christ will be honored in his body. Every day of his life, Christ will be magnified with every breath that he breathes. Whether he dies or whether he's alive, Christ will be made much of. And the reason he feels this way, the reason he feels this way is because living for Paul, he says here, is Christ. My life, I got one, one word to sum it up, Christ Jesus. Christ is my life every second. But then he says this weird thing, to die is gain. Why would dying be gain? How could losing everything that you have in your life everything that you enjoy right now, family, kids, job, snow, losing all of that, getting that all stripped away at the moment you die, how could Paul look at that and say, in his economy, say, gain. That's gain. It's because in dying, Paul explains a few verses later, you get more Jesus. And in Paul's economy, in his thinking, there isn't anything nor some of things that is more valuable, more precious than Jesus Christ. There is nothing remotely comparable to Jesus. And here's where it really gets real for, for all of us, for me included. 
Why does Paul feel that Jesus deserves this level of affection? Why does Paul think that Jesus deserves this level of adoration and commitment? Why would you say proudly and boast in the fact that I am a slave of Christ Jesus? Why would you be completely taken by this man, Jesus Christ? Another way to put it would be this. What did Jesus do? What did he do that compelled Paul to say, you own me. Every breath I've got is yours. Every breath I've got is yours. What did he do? What did Jesus do? Galatians 2.20 <clears throat> tells us what he did. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And here's the part. Who loved me and gave himself for me. And I want to close by focusing on this last line and just really fleshing out what that means. Because you can read it and not be gripped by it. And I'm going to do everything in my power to change that. If you're reading it and you're not held by this. What does it mean? One of the problems we have in modern Christianity is that um, we tend to understand the gospel in very global ways, like Jesus died for the world, that he died to redeem his people across the world, which is true and right. But in doing that, we have denigrated the personal interaction of what the gospel is. We've sort of lessened it or diminished it by saying, yeah, the global purpose is mission. We go out there and we preach the gospel to people, but we really need to look at what happened to us. We really need to look at what happened on the cross for us. <laughs> Jesus did die for the world. He died for a people to be redeemed from the world, and that is good and true. But we can't afford to lose the glory of the particular. The beauty of being saved by Jesus Christ individually, that Christ came and rescued you. So I want to, if you'd be willing to come along this uh, with me this morning, I want to paint a picture. And I want to illustrate using really imagery that's been communicated to me by David in the Psalms, your situation before your interaction with Christ Jesus and what that collision course was between you and him. So feel free to close your eyes if it's helpful. Concentrate. Think of you in this situation. Imagine you are trapped in a cell at the bottom of the deepest pit imaginable. And you are imprisoned there. And you are there by your own doing. Your actions put you there. It's because of your actions that you are there. And you look at your hands and feet and they are in chains. They are too heavy to move and therefore impossible for you to be freed from. And that's not the worst part. The worst part is that 
you are completely and utterly alone. There is nobody there at all. Just you and the darkness of your solitude. And as you contemplate your situation in this cell, you realize that no one will ever come to get you. Not only is it impossible for them to get to you if, you, if they wanted to, but there is no way, no way that anybody would want to come and get you. Not in this place. No one would go here. No one would come to get you. And you resign yourself that you will be in this cell for the rest of your life. This is how you're going to die. Alone and chained up. But then something happens one day. You see him approaching from a distance. And you know who it is. It's Jesus. He's alone. But for some weird reason, he's here and he's coming towards you. And all you can think is, why would you do this? Why? He comes into your cell and he kneels down next to you. And he begins to remove your chains one by one. He frees you. And your arms are so tired and so weak, you can't even lift them up. But that's all right, because he picks you up in his arms, his nail-scarred hands, and he begins to carry you out of the cell. And you look at him, and you are shocked and stunned that he would come to you and to rescue you. He would go through all of the darkness of the pit that you were in. And you ask him, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this, Jesus? Why are you even here? And he looks you in the eyes and he says, I want you. I want you. I want you. I came here for you. I paid for you to be free. You. I want you to imagine his, your name on his lips. That's how he thinks of you. You are not an abstract group of people. You are an individual. And he came for you. He says, I gave myself for you. In that cell, his rescue of you is not a global thing. It is an infinitely personal thing. This is Christ Jesus saving you. In Risen Hope, I really want you to see this because I honestly don't think you can appreciate or enjoy the global reality of salvation without recognizing that he came and rescued you. That's Galatians 2.20. He gave himself for me. He loved me, Paul says. To honor the glory of his Father and to display his infinite love for you, Jesus Christ gave up himself for you. And so we need to think in terms, of, in our salvation, we need to think about it in terms like that. This will change you. If you consider it, contemplate it, embrace it, this reality will change who you are. And like I said earlier, I'm aware that you can know something 
It can be a proposition that you hold as true and it doesn't hold you. I'm pleading with you. Let this take hold of you. Let this own you. Let this dominate your perspective about Jesus and your life. You are not your own. On the cross, he bought you. He bought you as an individual and you are his. We are called to give everything to him. We are called to give our comfort, our money, our time, our energy. It is not ours, it's his. And that is not a bad thing. That is a very good trade because we get him. So how we respond today really is going to be an indicator of the degree to which we feel it. Um, we are called to serve Christ Jesus like Epaphras and like Paul. We are called to be slaves of Christ Jesus. And what servants of Christ do is they give of themselves for the sake of the gospel. And the way Jesus did this is he paid a ransom for other people to live with him forever. And so we give our lives for others. And some of you, well, let me just say this. One of, the, one of the pillars of this church is to love where you live, to love where you live. And what that means is this. There are outside these doors and in your communities and in your neighborhoods, there are tangible and real needs that are not being met right now. And Christians are hardwired to meet them. There are people who are unloved right now who need to be loved. There are neighbors who need to be talked to and invited in and embraced and, 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 and given the grace that you've been given through Christ Jesus of having unconditional affection, even if they're not your favorite people. Um, some of you already know this. Some of you know in your neighborhood people, individuals that you can embrace and love. This community outside of us, <laughs> Kingsgate, is saturated with need. It is everywhere you turn. In this school, there are needs. There are kids here who have never felt real love from a parent. They don't know what it's like. And they surely do not know what it's like to feel love from Jesus Christ. No one's ever communicated that, that someone died for them. That if they put their faith in Jesus Christ, that sacrifice is theirs. He gave himself up for them. There is a community down the street called Kirkland Heights. And our group has been serving this community. Um, it's called uh, Kirkland Heights. It's basically a, a community of people who need desperately to see Jesus Christ. We've been working with Antioch Bible Church for the past two or three years. And we've been doing everything we can to serve them. We, we really need to focus on that. Like our group needs to focus on that. People in, who are in King State need to recognize the need that's there. And so what I would invite you to today, and this is really practical. I know I'm, I usually talk in abstract things. This is, this is where the boots hit the ground. I would commend to you that the way you could serve Christ Jesus this week is by putting on your response card, I'm willing to figure out ways I can serve. John Muir, Kamaikin, Friends of Youth, Kirkland Heights, this area, or places in your own neighborhood. And I would ask that you consider that as we praise and worship, that, that you recognize the need there and that you consider that God might be calling you to help meet those needs. That might be the way in which you expressed your servanthood to Christ Jesus. So if you feel God stirring your heart, I, I pray that you would put that on your response card. We're going to begin worshiping here in a second.
and um, taking communion. Um, if you need prayer, I will be in the back um, with some other leaders. Please don't hesitate to come back there. I want to pray with you. Um, if you're a believer, the communion table is open to you. And what I would say is this, that um, today we talked about Galatians 2.20 and about Christ giving himself up for you. If you're a believer, this is true of you. And loving you individually. And I want, as you take these elements to, I want you to preach to your soul that truth. That his body and blood were shed for you individually. Embrace that aspect of it. And then realize, pivot from that and realize that there's other people who you live near, who live in this community, who go to this school, who have no clue that they also are loved by Jesus Christ individually. And they desperately need to know. Let's pray real quick and then we'll worship. Father, I'm grateful for your hand in bringing these people today and giving me an opportunity to express what I feel you put on my heart, Lord. Over the next few seconds and minutes, we will worship you and we will extol your name. And I'm asking that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would come and you would be here with us. That your presence would saturate this room. That your name would be exalted and glorified in many people loving you and embracing communion, knowing you as their treasure and their joy. And also as people saying, I'm willing to lay down my time. My time is not tied up in all the things that I believe God is calling me to. There's some things that he wants me to do, things that he wants me to invest in. And I pray that you would use this time, Father, to instruct our hearts. What do you want us to do? How do you want us to commit ourselves? How do you want to spend us in our limited lives for the glory of your name and for the joy of people who would not have it if it wasn't for your instrumentality in using us? So I plead with you, Father, come. May we embrace Jesus Christ as the one who died for us individually. The one who loved us, saw us before the foundation of the world and said, I want that person. I want them in my family. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.